and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker Whitelaw, and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the erotic psychological thriller *The Handmaiden*, a request from Patreon subscriber Cat. Directed by Park Chan-wook, it's a Korean adaptation of the novel *Fingersmith* by Sarah Waters, who is best known for writing British lesbian historical dramas. Set in Japanese-occupied Korea in the 1930s, the main characters are Suki and Hideko, a young con woman and a wealthy unmarried lady. Working for a con artist who calls himself Count Fujiwara, Suki poses as Lady Hideko's housemaid, hoping to trick her into a marriage so she and Fujiwara can steal the lady's fortune. Uh, So this movie has a notably elaborate plot, so while the first half of this episode will be spoiler-free, we will discuss spoilers and plot twists later on, so you can rest easy in being able to listen to the first half if you've not seen the movie yet. We do strongly recommend this movie. It's excellent. We're really glad people requested this. Um, We're really glad someone requested this. I was excited to watch it because people speak very highly of this movie. Um, If you do require trigger warnings, Google them, because this movie is very adult in many regards. (laughs) yes i think you have in the document that we have our planning document like this is the most sexually explicit film we've covered on this podcast and it really is like the most the most grown-up film that we've had at overinvested (laughs) in our four-year history so uh if if you need to check for something we recommend that you do that because the reputation that this film has is that it's very sexually explicit and for the first hour and a half or so i was like there's been some sex but not that much and then i was like oh no there's a lot more. So uh, this the reputation is earned, shall we say. Have you read the book Fingersmith or any of Sarah Waters' novels? I own one that I haven't read, and I've read The Little Stranger, which is like the one non-lesbian book that she's done, I think, which was made into a film with Donald Gleason a couple of years ago. The film is not good, but the book is great. It's kind of a Henry James-ish gothic house novel. But I've not read Fingersmith, which is meant to be great. This made me really want to read it because I was curious about how it compared to the film, which obviously is sort of set in this different time and place. She, as you said, writes these sort of Victorian novels. And a lot of the themes that this film is engaging with are very Victorian in nature, but also apply to the setting that he has chosen, which was interesting to me, but then it made me curious about the book. Yeah, I mean, I read it, but it was many, many years ago. I, I read Fingersmith and I read Tipping the Velvet when I was a teenager. I really liked that Tipping the Velvet. I remember not liking Fingersmith as much. And as I recall, I think I just found it just really way too melodramatic and convoluted. I have no idea how I would, how my opinion would change uh, if I reread it now, but I definitely preferred the movie to the experience I had when I was reading the book as a teenager. But kind of the whole concept of the book is that it is one of these really like elaborate, overwrought Victorian melodramas with lots of sort of betrayals and, you know, everyone's sort of living in a, in a Dickensian life of crime. And in this, we will not pretend to be scholars of Korean history, but um, I think even if you know absolutely nothing, you can tell the kind of class and cultural divides very clearly in this movie where he's transposed the story of Fingersmith into 1930s Korea where the main character is Korean and she goes to work for this upper class older man and his niece who is Lady Hideko and the older man is Korean but he really wants to be Japanese and he kind of fetishizes the Japanese background 
of Lady Hideko and the design of the house kind of plays into this. It's like they introduce it as like we use this amazing kind of combination of Western and Japanese design and there's this kind of speech halfway through where he talks about how he finds uh, like Korean aesthetics disgusting and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of kind of colonial stuff happening there um, with the interplay between sort of class and nationality. Yes, and a lot of the sort of Victorian connection that was interesting to me comes up in the second half of the film, which we cannot talk about yet. So wait for the second half of the podcast for my further thoughts on (laughs) how that's connected. This is probably one of the biggest movies of the past five years, I'd say, that I hadn't seen in terms of like critical reception. I was at Oxford doing my master's when this came out, and I think it was in the cinema for one week. And I was like busy that week and missed it. And then I always kind of meant to see it and had never gotten around to it. So I was really glad to have the excuse of having to watch it for this podcast. I think I liked it slightly less than you. I liked it, but I didn't love it, which I feel I need to say at the top because there are a lot of people who like passionately love this film in a very emotional way, which was evidenced by the number of people who replied to like our tweet about doing it with like enthusiastic <laughs> gifs. <laughs> and I definitely enjoyed watching it and found it like intellectually engaging, but I wasn't as emotionally moved by it, I would say, as a lot of people were. And I've only seen one other Park Chan-wook movie, which is uh, Stoker, which is the English language film he did with Mia Wojcikowska like seven years ago or something, which I thought was fine. And I watched a couple episodes of the John Carey adaptation, Little Drummer Girl, that he did for AMC. Which was not good. Uh, the scripts were the main problem with that, which he did not write. But um, it was really... Some people liked it. I thought it was really unfortunate. But um, I think there is a certain level of uh, hyper-stylization to his direction that reminds me a little bit of Guillermo del Toro, who is a director you like more than I do, that I don't always respond to so much. Obviously, like, there's not that there's, I'm opposed to, like, style in movies. Like, I love Wes Anderson, who's the most, like, hyper-stylist filmmaker imaginable. But there's something about the way that this was directed, and Stoker for sure, which is a much less good movie than this, that reminds me, again, a little bit of Del Toro. There's a little bit of a, like, pulpy quality that I just don't react to on, like, a visceral level exactly, which isn't like intellectual criticism so much as like it's not going to be my thing really whereas like you have seen you were saying before we started recording like most of Park Chan-wook's films so yes <laughs> we're coming yes. at this from a little bit of a different angle I mean basically also he makes like very gothic stylized movies which as you know is very much my jam I love Stoker and then in, it's interesting you kind of say like pulpy because that is kind of more the area of his sort of present day films and he he does quite a diverse range of stories, actually. Like, he always makes adult thrillers, whether it's kind of a sex thriller or a violence thriller, you know. Therefore, grown up psychologically and in terms of content. Old Boy is by far the most famous in the West, but I actually didn't really like that because I kind of just found it to be about someone murdering people for a whole film in just a very extreme way. Uh, but Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is one that I think Morgan should check out. It's kind of the opposite of this. Um, it's about poor people. It's in the present day. Um, it also is very stylish, but um, yeah, just a really interesting and gripping movie um, that I believe Tarantino is a big fan of. Whether or not that counts as an endorsement to you is up to your choices. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, The Handmaiden definitely falls into his kind of gothic category. 
He is very well read and he's adapted uh, several books. Obviously, The Little Drummer Girl is an adaptation. And uh, one of his earlier films, Thirst, which is a vampire movie, is adapted from a Victorian, very kind of a gory and sexy book. So he's got his tastes. And um, The Handmaiden was co-written by him and Chung Seo Kyung, who is uh, one of his kind of longtime collaborators. And she is a woman, just because there's there's a lot of discourse about kind of uh, men making movies about lesbians, obviously. And um, this is kind of generally perceived by most people to be one of the good examples. Obviously, it's not a long list because um, there aren't very many movies about lesbians in general. Um, so one of the really obvious sort of gothic Victorian elements of this is just like the initial premise, which is the classic concept of a young, somewhat naive woman entering the big house where she is overwhelmed by rich and powerful people. You know, it's very spooky. The design is very thoughtful. Aesthetically, it's, you know, it's falling into the same category as something like Crimson Peak, where it's not pastiche, but it's very referential. And even towards the beginning, it's subverting that idea because instead of truly being naive, the main character you learn very quickly is going there as a criminal, is not actually a housemaid, she's a pickpocket, and she comes from this uh, group of criminals who are targeting this rich woman because she has this inheritance. Um, and she is currently kind of the ward of her uh, her creepy uncle, who is Uncle Kazuki. Yeah, I mean, part of what is happening with this film, I think it's, we can kind of say, if you want no spoilers, you should stop listening. But um, <laughs> is it, you, it's really hard to talk about this without giving some stuff away, because a lot of what makes it interesting to discuss is that you get some sort of point of view shifts as the movie goes along. And so the first portion of the film, which is all about this maid character, is really playing into a lot of um, familiar tropes, as you say, if you are familiar with any kind of storytelling or media about these kinds of people, right? So she kind of is going in with a nefarious goal like she's trying to trick this woman but at the same time she is lower class and is impressed by the wealth and opulence on display and is really taken in by this woman who she's serving so and it's very sympathetic towards her because like Hideko is so kind of isolated and she seems really naive you, you already get this kind of like moral quandary for the main character, Suki, where she, obviously this is like her chance to escape a life of poverty, but also she's going to have to absolutely screw over that woman in the process. And um, as they kind of become closer and begin to have a sexual affair, obviously that becomes more conflicted. But that is just the first third. Yes. But um, I think it does a really good job of both subverting some of the familiar tropes of that sort of genre of fiction while also enacting them, right? Yeah. The main character thinks that she is more knowing than everyone else. But again, like she is kind of naive and is living out this story that a lot of people watching this will be familiar with, which is that She's the maid in this, like, rich lady's house, and they start having sex. We've all seen that before, like, if <laughs> not necessarily lesbians, like, that's, that's something that 
has been told many, many times. And the film is so aware of that. Yeah, and I, th- I really feel like also like Park Chan-wook is like just straightforwardly enthusiastic about some of the cornier elements of this story, which I really enjoy because it's so dark and it really is kind of an intense psychological thriller. But there's just these moments that are, even if they're not lighthearted themselves, they're like lighthearted from the perspective of the audience because you're just like, oh, there's that little trope we all love. <laughs> yeah, and the production design and the costumes are so opulent which does a lot to convey information about the characters and the place, a lot of which you don't totally understand until later because you get more information as the movie goes along. I think the actors are great. Uh, Kim Min-hee plays the Lady Hideko, the boss, and she is best known for being in a bunch of films by the director Hong Sang-soo, who is another South Korean filmmaker who makes films that are like as different from this as you could possibly imagine. I've only seen one of them, um, which I think I mentioned on one of our New York Film Festival podcasts a couple of years ago, actually. But uh, like art film, capital letters, like long shots of people sitting around a table having a conversation for like 20 minutes. I mean, like great movie, but very, very different. So it was fun for me to see her do something so different stylistically acting wise. But um, I think the actors all do a really good job. But I do think that part of the reason I wasn't as emotionally engaged by this movie as obviously many other people were, was that it seemed more interested in the sort of machinations of the plot than the characters necessarily. And I think that it's not that the characters don't feel like they've been thought about and like they clearly have distinct characteristics, but that a lot of the information you're getting about them is through more external things and these sort of twists and turns that you find out as opposed to like conversation, which is kind of the kind of drama that I like more. Whereas I love a symbolic glove is the thing. So if you're someone who enjoys a symbolic glove, this is the film for you. (laughs) Right. Which is just up to taste. We'll we'll start talking about the plot stuff now, I think, because it's hard to... I don't know what else we have to say unless you have something before we get into spoilers. But um, the plot was really engaging for me. Like, this movie is fun to watch because it has twists. But it felt like that was more... Again, where the movie's energy was as opposed to, like, making this a grand romance. Although, again, many people love the movie... For the romance, so... I mean, the thing is, interestingly, I wasn't really watching it sort of as a sweeping romance, because I love a sweeping romance, but I was definitely watching it being like, I'm enjoying, you know, obviously that element and the relationship and I'm rooting for them, but I was very much kind of watching it from the plot perspective and just feeling really immersed in that. Also, it's like, people are kind of starved for good sapphic content. So it's like, thank God, here's like a real film that's actually good. But yeah, like I could not remember one goddamn thing from the original book. All I remembered was there was a million plot twists. So going into it, I was like, well, I'm sure there was going to be a plot twist soon. And when it happened, I was like, okay, yeah, I have no memory of anything. So I was properly like (laughs) rocketing along there. Like, this is amazing. Loving every minute of this. And um, it's one of those kind of great examples of a movie where I'm sure it's different the second time you watch it too. But, you know, you get the same story uh, kind of two or three times over. And you see it from such different angles that you're kind of re you're re-examining 
the meaning behind like certain props that you see early on like early in the, in the first part of the film you you know the girl when she's first left alone in Hideko's room she opens all of her hat boxes and finds a hat box that just contains like a coil of rope and you're like well what's the coil of rope like is this a sex thing and like you find out it's her escape hatch you know it's because her her aunt who was the former kind of companion of her uncle hung herself and this is potentially something that Hideko will do to escape her uncle's clutches because her uncle is deeply abusive to an extent that you really cannot predict from the early section of the film until you kind of get to that point and see all those events again. But um, I think, Morgan, we should just do a general recap of what happens or during the process of this con and what the first big twist is. Yes, Anyone listening who hasn't seen it, or even who hasn't seen it in a long time, will be lost <laughs> if we don't explain this fully. So you see sort of hits that something is not quite right. And the maid finds these finds these various objects when she's snooping around the ladies' room, which seem like sex stuff, which then makes the scene where they first have sex and uh, the lady is like... I just, I'm so nervous about getting married. Like, I ha- my mother didn't teach me anything. Like, you have to teach me how to have sex, basically. And I was like, yeah, okay. That seems, <laughs> that seems real. Like, so you're watching, and I at least, like, there's clearly something is going on, right? And, like, she has these reading sessions with her uncle, where or the something bad is happening. Like, it's very apparent that there's, he's not a good guy. But you don't know the full details. I mean, he's got this massive library of antique books and his whole kind of obsession is buying and selling antique books with this group of men who we don't meet until halfway through. And part of the reason why he wants to marry Hideko is for her fortune so he can spend that on more books. And Count Fujiwara's entry into this is as a forger so he can try and, you know, buy and sell more art to this man and also get painting lessons with Hideko, which is his in as the kind of the the seducer figure. This uncle is clearly, I mean, clearly from step one, like he has this mannerism where he's always licking his inky pen. So he has a black tongue. He has the world's creepiest stare. When he's in the library, he has this snake, which you initially think is real, but is in fact a model snake, which just guards the door and freaks the fuck out of Suki when she first goes into the library. So yeah, there's, there's clearly something going on there. And it's alarming. Yeah. And it turns out that he has groomed Hideko from childhood to theatrically perform readings of porn, which is what his collection is. Both Western and like Eastern Japanese porn, which is a collecting area of some rare book collectors, and was one of the things that was most interesting to me in terms of the adaptation, right? And made me curious about reading the novel because the Victorians were obsessed with porn and like deviant sexual behavior because it wasn't acceptable to talk about any of this kind of thing in like polite society, which inevitably therefore leads to people fixating on it and in like the underground subcultures passing things around and producing, you know. Pornography, and this is also the advent of photography, right? So the Victorians just were freaks, basically. And I know 
nothing really about, you know, the history of Japanese pornography, but obviously there is a long history going back many centuries of like written and drawn, you know, sexual content, which is a lot of what is going on in this film. So it made sense to have that as the sort of link between the story. Like it, you can transpose the original narrative or what I imagine the original narrative might've been into this setting because there is that culture as well of like this printed material. She's not just reading Eastern stuff. Like there's one that they think they say like, Oh, is that a Marquis de Sade thing? And it's not, but they're clearly it's, he's omnivorous. He's collecting stuff from all over the place, but he's forcing her to perform it for these creepy men who are voyeuristically getting off on watching her do this. She's very dressed up and there's one scene where she has to kind of simulate a sex position with a sex doll thing. It's very fucked up, but it's interesting because the whole movie is basically about voyeurism in a way. And then having sort of your own power to make sexual choices yourself, right? Which ties into the conversation about the a straight man making this film. Because I kind of felt that the sex scenes felt a little voyeuristic to me. And he has a lot of wide shots where you see these, like, tableaus of these two women that felt definitely referencing Japanese porn. But the whole film is also sort of condemning that in ways that we can get into maybe a little bit. I mean, like the end of the movie specifically. So it felt like there was a little bit of an ambivalence to what the film is doing in that it's like critiquing this, but also enacting it in a way that I found just kind of interesting and a little bit perturbing, not like offensive per se, but just like, hmm, I don't know. There was a lot of discourse about the whole, all the sex stuff at the time, but that was four years ago, so it's a bit lost to the internet. Um, I find it interesting to compare to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is also obviously a lesbian historical drama, and it is about one character who is initially deceiving another character, and then they come together, and it shares kind of many of the same things of kind of women observing each other and extracting yourself from the male gaze and falling in love in that manner, but it is by a woman and uh, she was collaborating with an ex-lover who is also very kind of uh, experienced actress in the French film industry who's experienced a lot of sexual harassment and abuse from male filmmakers and they are both very feminist and there's a lot of kind of conscious commentary in that as well. I definitely didn't feel like Park Chan-wook was overstepping or anything in this. I was not offended. I do think it's a different style of film from that. The sex scenes in particular are aesthetic rather than sort of naturalistic like you do get these wide shots like Morgan said and it's sort of like oh these really slim women sort of posing so there's some elements of it where you're like okay it's relatively realistic and other parts where it's like yes this is posed for the camera but in the sa- at the same time they're both performing for each other in the main sex scene that is revisited in the film and the story is like very much about these characters who are presenting a different front to different people And Lady Hideko's kind of personal journey is that when she's spending time with Suki, initially she is pretending to be this sort of innocent, quite naive person, but her natural personality is that she is 
very closed off and cynical because obviously she's been living in this incredibly fucked up situation for her entire life. And her kind of journey is her learning to kind of open up because she gets to have her own sexual awakening despite all of this abuse for years. Obviously, none of that is something she's doing voluntarily or enjoying. And it's something that um, Ken Fujiwara even remarks upon. He's just like kind of talking about how she's a cold fish, this sort of thing. And, you know, you can tell that she's just completely unengaged with all of this, like, clearly misogynist and revolting pornography that she's been having to perform for this audience of men non-consensually. And then as soon as she's with Suki, she's clearly enjoying herself for, like, the first time. And it really is her losing her virginity in just a completely different way from what you initially perceive it. So there's a lot going on there in terms of, you know, the way women present themselves to the world, to the male gaze versus to other women and, you know, sexuality as it's perceived by men versus the way it like emerges from a woman's spirit. Yes, I think that's all true. It just felt a little bit ambivalent to me because like basically there's a scene... So, like, big spoilers here. There's a scene at the end of the film where they, like, destroy all the books in his library. Which, to me, as a book person, I was like, I understand the symbolism, <laughs> but I don't like watching this. I was like, yes, destroy the books. <laughs> right. But, again, like, the movie is recreating that for the viewer in a way. Obviously, it's not the same, like, of course, as, like, this girl and woman being like abused by this horrible man but film is inherently voyeuristic like we did our rear window episode and we're talking about this right and it felt like there was sort of a a link that was missing in the film's like intellectual argument about all of this stuff to me because even if what it's kind of saying about the relationship between these two women is very positive, which I think it is, you're still serving up a sort of eroticized female image for the viewer, which is inherently voyeuristic, right? And even the scenes where she is reading the porn, he shows at length. And it's creepy and gross, but it is also erotic because he's showing you the whole thing, right? So I thought of Portrait of Lady on Fire a lot too, because if I recall correctly, the only nudity in that movie is when they're in bed after they've slept together, which you don't see. And she shows the nudity, but it's just in the context of them like being very comfortable with each other in a like, post-sexual way. And it felt to me really refreshing because it would be sort of silly to have them do the thing where they're like covering their boobs with the sheet, which they do on television, right? But the way their bodies were shot was not sexualized for the viewer. It was just like- There's definitely a sense in that film where it's like some elements of their lives are private and they're none of our business, which is something I really enjoy when historical dramas understand that, where they're like, no, it is time for us to cast a veil over this event. Whereas in this film, these characters don't have any privacy because they're like living in each other's pockets and they're in this toxic house, and the the only way they can communicate is by being kind of duplicitous and having double meanings in their behaviour. And yeah, I find like a couple of quotes from Sarah Waters, who obviously 
Um, I don't think she was particularly involved in the movie and also the movie is obviously very different from her original vision. So she said, Fingersmith was about finding a space for women to be with each other away from prying eyes. Although ironically, the film is a story told by a man, it's still very faithful to the idea that the women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition to find their own way of exploring their desires, which is kind of what happens at the end. And then also she said, the two characters are like mirrors of each other, which I found rather troubling in the past because it blacks out the difference. But when I spoke to Park, he said he was bringing the Japanese mistress and the Korean sewing girl together on an equal level. The novel is about class rather than gender, people passing themselves off as something they're not. The film is more about colonialism, that very fraught relationship between Korea and Japan. Yeah, I definitely felt watching it that there was stuff that was going over my head. Not that I wasn't picking up on the colonial stuff, like literally the subtitles are different colors depending on what language they're speaking. And they explain the whole setup at the beginning of which you described that the creepy uncle has this sort of fetish for Japan and hates his own Korean heritage. But like I remember watching the film Burning a couple years ago, which was another Korean film. And I just didn't like that movie, period. I don't think I would have liked it, even if I'd been up on all of the subtext. But sometimes when you watch a movie from another country, you can just sort of sense that there's, even if you're getting some of the political context, that if you don't have as much information, that you're missing some things. And um, I suspect that this would have been a slightly richer experience for me if I had more of that information, which is just the nature of the beast, right? Like, it is what it is. And I found the colonialism stuff interesting even without having as much of that context. But um, it felt fairly subtle to me for most of the movie. Like, it, they're not talking about it a ton, which makes some sense if it's an added element to the adaptation, even if the adaptation is pretty different. But... Yeah, it just felt like something that I was like, this is interesting, but I don't think I'm picking up on all of the, the subtext. I don't know if you felt differently. Um, well, I mean, one can't tell what one isn't picking up on. I definitely didn't have yeah, as much of that sen yes. sensation, particularly. I mean, I think that, if anything, it's like the most relevant in the relationship between the two men, which is not really portrayed as a relationship on screen, really, until the end. But it's kind of the you know, while this deception brings the two women together because they understand each other more, the two men are also lying to each other and to themselves, but in a toxic way that ultimately kind of takes them down. So Count Fujiwara, who is not Japanese and is pretending to be so, is using that image, this very kind of, he's very charming. He wears this tuxedo. He's, he's always very stylish and put together because he's constructed this image as a con artist, but his personality is, he's just a very sort of brutal and uncaring person. Um, he's very casually nasty. He doesn't come across as just this like monstrous sadist, but he's very much out for himself. And the kind of twist in the first third is obviously that, you know, Suki spends the whole of this relationship thinking that she is tricking Hideko for her partner, Fujiwara. But then once they get to the point where they're going to run away with the money and abandon Hideko in a mental asylum, very Victorian gothic theme there, they turn around and put Suki in the asylum instead and Hideko and the man run off with the money. And then the second, ha the second section, you discover all of this stuff from Hideko's perspective where you learn about her backstory with her uncle and so on. And you also realise that she is far more kind of 
cold and calculating than you see from Suki's perspective. And she hatches this plan with Fujiwara for them to pretend like they're falling in love and she's being naively seduced when in fact it's a scheme for her uh, to escape her uncle's clutches. They'll split the money and put Suki in the asylum. And then the final third, we discover that actually the two women had fallen in love together and they realize that they can elope instead. So they create this situation where Suki can go to the asylum, then be helped by her friends or the other criminals she used to live with. Then she can escape. The two women can escape together. They can frame Fujiwara and Fujiwara ends up at the end with the uncle, who's obviously incredibly pissed off because his library's just been torn apart by these two women. He's lost his inheritance and he's just been scammed. So kind of the final scenes of the two women getting this happy ending and the uncle... Uh, mutilating Count Fujiwara in his basement but in the end he gets his comeuppance because Fujiwara has his own escape hatch which is a mercury filled box of cigarettes which he smokes and poisons them both which is amazing. (laughs) Yes it is quite elaborate. There's a lot of the last chunk devoted to the men. Yes. Which I found a little bit frustrating because it's in this three parts, and the first two parts are very distinctly, like, from the points of view of the two women, and then the third part isn't as clearly, like, his perspective, because they do cut to the women a bit, but it's kind of, like, his part, and it's much shorter. I understand why thematically that is happening, because when they're in the basement, the uncle, sorry, I can't remember any of these names, I got no sleep last night, and I am exhausted keeps asking the Count for details of his wedding night with Tadeko because, again, he wants the sort of voyeuristic satisfaction of hearing about this. And, of course, they did not have sex because she was like, no. But the Count won't give him any of the details and then winds up killing both of them with these cigarettes, which I think is a really great way to sort of conclude that part of the film. This is also a movie with kind of a Return of the King situation where there are, like, 17 endings that just keep... Yeah, I was literally thinking, like, I bet Morgan's going to reference Return of the King once we get to the ending, because I was like, wow, there's a lot of, uh, there's a revolving door of endings here. Yes, (laughs) but it did, I mean, I guess it just depends on how you're viewing the film, right? Because I don't think it's really set up as a romance either. Obviously, it has a romance in it, but if it were a sweeping romance, this is not how the last 20 minutes of the film would be set up, because you sort of see them from a distance almost. And then you you get like a few minutes with them right at the end after the men die. But um, I think the film is more interested in these questions of voyeurism. Yeah, I definitely don't feel like this was a romance film. And if you kind of Google the movie, it's not described as a romance film. It's described, you know, as an erotic thriller or as a psychological thriller or as a queer thriller. And it, I mean, it absolutely is a thriller. And I feel, I'd I'd be interested to know how many people have sort of like erroneously watched this thinking, I'm looking forward to seeing this lesbian romance that everyone's talking about. And then discovering that it has like people's fingers being chopped off and stuff. (laughs) Yes. I mean, and I'm not saying like I needed it to be a romance. It's fine. But if if I guess it felt to me like there was just a little bit of a, an imbalance of the genres and what exactly it was trying to do. I felt that it was a perfect marriage and I was really drinking in the aesthetic as well. Yeah, I mean, this is more a movie for you than for me. 
I think it's apparent from very early on that that yeah. was the case, just like stylistically. As I said, once you introduce a symbolic glove that is never removed apart from when you're close to your lover, that is when it's time, it is my time to shine. Also lots of um, very carefully lit interiors with lots of uh, selective furniture choices. And the, the outside shots were interesting as well, because there were a couple of times where like they just had... You know, when they were at the boat at the end and when they're driving towards the estate, it's this like very, it's this almost kind of like cartoonish, I think it was colour corrected sort of outside aesthetic as opposed to the indoors where it's often quite gloomy and very Victorian. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very heightened. I mean, the Crimson Peak comparison is interesting because I, after watching this, I was like, I had thought about the Guillermo del Toro comparison and I thought, didn't Guillermo del Toro love this movie? Like, I think I remember him tweeting about it. And then I Googled and I did not find that because there were so many like blog posts and reviews of people comparing the movie to Crimson Peak, which I actually think they're really different. Yeah, I don't think they're particularly similar, but it's like people don't have much exposure to genuine kind of gothic thrillers as opposed to stuff that sort of is a shallow pastiche, which is obviously quite common. Yeah, because Crimson Peak is a romance, capital R. But what they do have in common is that the house, the houses play such a big part in the story in terms of like being characters, right? Which is kind of a cliche thing to say about a setting of a film, you know, like New York City is a character in the movie, whatever. But you definitely have a sense of that house in this film and not necessarily like the whole layout, but the different locations within the house and what they symbolize to the characters and the fact that like the uncle's library and like the basement, which gets referenced are like the danger zones. Right. And her sort of apartment is the safe area. And that's where the sort of better sex is happening. And it just felt like really, really intelligently designed to me in a way that makes the whole movie work. Because if you don't, if you're not getting all the feeling from the design, the film really falls apart. Because even though I thought the actors all did a really good job, so much of the story is being told through the visuals that without that sense of place... And all of the sliding doors as well. Yes. Because they have all obviously these kind of uh, Japanese-style doors, which right at the beginning, like, you're introduced to Hideko because Suki kind of comes to the house and she's taken on this deeply confusing kind of uh, tour of this enormous residence, which is just ridiculously too big. And then she gets to live in this absurdly tiny box bed bedroom, which is like, it doesn't need to be that small, but she needs to be right outside the door of her mistress so she can come and help her when she's getting nightmares, which of course you find out she's faking the nightmares so she can fake this persona as a naive young lady. And Hideko is actually watching her through a peephole. So there's all that going on. But um, then when they leave the house, you see them doing this very kind of a carefully choreographed, like sliding open and close the doors to escape. And I think during the pornography scenes, there's a point where sort of like, you know, jade doors or something are one of the symbols that they're using to describe a vagina or something along those lines. Actually, that reminds me about kind of the the point where they initially escape the estate. There's a really great uh, quote from Park Chan-wook, which is obviously, it's one of these quotes where it's like, 
this is abundantly obvious symbolism when you're watching the movie, but it's just nice to hear it in the director's own words. Um, so basically, you know, they flee the house and there's this small wall around the edge, but Hideko finds it very difficult to climb over. And there's this kind of chivalric moment where Suki kind of helps her over. And the way director Park described this was... Everything that I wanted to say with this film is probably in this one scene where the women are jumping over the stone wall. And notice how low this wall is. Had she ever wished, Lady Hideko could could have always jumped over that wall. But the deep-rooted emotional trauma inside her was holding her back. Then this person enters her life and she is able to find love. Through that love, Hideko gains bravery that allows her to jump over that wall in a single breath towards freedom. Yeah. True. (laughs) I mean, the trauma stuff is definitely, this is not going to be a movie that's pleasant for some people to watch, right? Because you have, like, the child reading, like, porn in certain yeah, points, Yeah, I, so, I was not prepared for that, because I was like, when that happened, I was like, this is disturbing in ways that, like, I wasn't expecting from the film. Um, which obviously, like, is good in some ways, because it's nice to be surprised, but I was just like, I need to go on Twitter after this and make sure that people know to, like, Google if you need a warning. Yeah, cause... and... They're not like they're sitting down and having, like, serious conversations about sexual abuse. Because this, as you say, is like an entertaining thriller set in the 1930s. But one of the things I think the movie does do well is, like, realistically depict how someone would respond to this treatment. Not that everyone would respond this way, obviously, but, like, it feels very plausible to me that this woman would behave in the way that she does. Even if they're not, like, digging deep, but, uh... Yeah, just like Hideko's characterization and sort of the the way she reacts to Suki is just really amazing. Because it's like you've got these kind of different layers of experience and cynicism and naivety from both of them, which, like, interlock and overlap and sort of improve each other in a really... in just, like, a really satisfying way. Because, like, obviously you have this kind of role reversal where you initially assume one of them is the cynic and the other one's the innocent, and then you realise it's the other way round. But, like Morgan said, just the way they kind of illustrate the way Hideko has grown up, a plausible kind of trajectory for her attitude to take, like, towards relationships and sex, and also, uh, you know, towards deception. And you see her kind of reaching out quite early in the film where she's sort of saying, oh, you know, what if I fell in love with someone else who isn't the Count? And she's angry when Suki is like, no, of course you're going to fall in love with the Count because she wants to, she wants it to be easier than it actually is. So yeah, I, I just, uh, I thought they handled that topic very well, even though it's some like disturbing, unexpected subject matter in there. Yeah. I will say I thought that the uncle, if they handled this stuff with her quite well, he is so comically evil which is obviously on purpose, right? I mean, he's got these, like, yes. bushy eyebrows and, like, licks his pen and, you know. I mean, he is this, like, cartoon villain and I feel like that is the element that felt most in keeping with my memories of the novel, which are that yeah. it's this quite histrionic, like, Penny Dreadful situation. Right. And the film, obviously, again, wants to be entertaining, even as it's dealing with this, like, quite upsetting, very adult subject matter. But if it really wanted to de- engage with, like, childhood sexual abuse, it would feel different. Like, that character would have to be different. Because he's he is the most two-dimensional of all the characters in 
the movie. Yeah, he's just terrible. And I feel like they kind of, they cover it enough. And if they try to tackle the topic in a more detailed way, and also if the film was like more realistic, it would just be like offensive and tacky. But because the film is kind of so ridiculous and like the method by which she is abused at a child is like so outside the realm of likeliness. Like it's just, it's so weird that it's almost kind of entering like that Hannibal zone where you're like, well, I'm not going to be cannibalized. So I'm not super concerned about this. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the movie is kind of over the top enough that like personally, anyway, I was watching it. I was like, okay, right. We're watching this entertaining thriller. Some bad things have happened, but (laughs) now it's time to like appreciate the dresses again. Yeah, I kind of was, like, I I wasn't exactly offended by it, but I was sort of like, hmm, I don't know. Sort of I'm in, sure in the middle, I'm sure this was divisive at the time, but we read a few reviews, and mostly kind of the, the discourse seemed to focus on, like, the depictions of the lesbian sex scenes, so. It was one of the best-reviewed movies of that year, for sure. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it was on lots of best-of lists. Yeah, there was definitely discourse about the sex scenes, but I don't remember it being massively divisive. I think it was pretty much beloved by most people i mean who doesn't love a thriller that's made handsomely people enjoy to have fun (laughs) with movies as they did in this case yeah do you have any do you have any final thoughts on the handmaiden um no i don't think so i'm just really glad that someone requested this because i'd kind of been meaning to watch it thanks kat for requesting this we do love a patreon request we have received many excellent suggestions recently which are filling up our summer that lacks any new releases and we have several more uh to come so if you want to request a film or a handful of tv episodes or media of that type go on patreon and request it from us for a fee (laughs) um morgan what are we doing next week so Next week, we will be discussing Witness, which is a film from 1985 starring Harrison Ford, which I saw as a teenager and was overcome by how attractive he was in this movie. I think I probably, I definitely would have seen the Star Wars movies by this point, but only those when I was like 13 or something. And he's playing an adult, adult man and a hottie. He is a detective who has to solve a crime in an Amish community in Pennsylvania. And there's, you know, something afoot. Uh, I don't remember all the details, but it was nominated for like a zillion Oscars. And is generally considered one of the best movies that he made, which is not necessarily saying much because poor Harrison Ford did not always make the best choices in his career. Uh, So this will be really interesting to revisit since I have not seen it since I was 17 or something. Directed by Peter Weir, the great Peter Weir. And this is another Patreon request. So uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting this. You have not seen it. No, I guess I'm going to watch A Man Solve a Crime. I've done it before and I'll do it again. (laughs) Uh, Viggo Mortensen is in this film, playing a hot Amish man. Also very exciting to me at the age of 17. (laughs) And uh, this was Lucas Haas, Leonardo DiCaprio's buddy. This was his first movie as a child which is also entertaining because now he's just known as being a member of the Pussy Posse. But in this, he plays a child who witnesses a murder. So there's a lot of sort of extraneous ephemeral stuff about this film that is very entertaining. Uh, But hopefully the movie itself lives up to my memories of it. So um, I'm sure that's streaming all over the place. Uh, The Handmaiden, if you want to watch it and have not yet, is in America is free on Amazon Prime. So if you have access, 
Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I recently published an essay about uh, historical drama and colonialism, which some of you may find interesting. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverInvestedPodcast. And our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.